in Christ alone and in Christ alone. We are down to Exodus chapter 18 now. So would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. We are going to continue our series study from the amazing book of Exodus. Uh, the first man who landed on the moon, Neil Armstrong, once said that mystery creates wonder. And wonder is the basis of man's desire to understand. And so attraction is only intense uh, when mystery is involved. Uh, in this passage, chapter 18, in some sense, it's almost like a mystery. Uh, it's almost like an interlude between all the exciting activities of exiting from Exodus and just before receiving the laws from chapter 19 onwards, Mount Sinai. Uh, it is a curious story in some way. Uh, it's hard to see at first what this account actually adds to the narrative in Exodus, but there are some profound things happening here, and, uh, and we want to plow through this. It is the story of uh, Moses' father-in-law. Moses had first uh, met uh, his father-in-law by the name of Jethro, the priest of Midian, after he saved his two daughters from the threatening shepherds, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 2. And then Moses married Zipporah, uh, and she bore him two sons. And then God called Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people. And what we have here then is a reunion. Now, Moses' father-in-law Jethro uh, brought his daughter, which is Moses' wife, Zipporah, and his two grandsons back to reunion with uh, Moses. And so this passage, chapter 18, 1 to 27, what I'd like to do is just break it up into three portions, three parts, three points, and then I will try to weave a few applications in between that. So the first one is Jethro's arrival, followed by Jethro's uh, adoration, and then lastly is Jethro's advice. So his arrival, his adoration, and his advice to Moses. So let me just, uh, the first part of it is Jethro's arrival, that is in uh, seven verses. So verse one says, Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, let me just stop there for a little while, because Jethro has other names as well, not just uh, Jethro, but his name is also known as Reel, R-E-U-E-L. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, 18, uh, it says that his name is also Reel. And then he has another name in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, means Hobab, H-O-B-A-B, Hobab. So Jethro has a few names. Uh, so if you uh, come across that, uh, don't be alarmed, it's the same person. And... Uh, and he says here that Jethro is a priest of Midian. He's from the line of Midian. And uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25, you know that Abraham, after the death of Sarah, he, re he married another lady by the name of Keturah. And Keturah bore him six sons. And the fourth son is a boy by the name of Midian. So in some... So uh, Jethro is from that medium tribe. 
And let's carry on here in verse 2. After Moses has sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her. We are not told actually uh, when it happened, when actually uh, Moses sent Zipporah and his uh, sons away. Uh, probably on his way to Egypt. The last time we heard of uh, Zipporah was in uh, Exodus chapter 4, I think, or chapter 3. Uh, and, uh, and after that, we didn't hear of Zipporah at all. So presumably, Moses must have sent him and the two sons away while he went into Egypt uh, to deliver the people out of uh, uh, um, Egypt. Uh, that's right. So, so he was away. Moses sent her and the away, and his father-in-law Jethro received her. And then verse 3, and her two sons, one son was named Gershom, uh, which means sojourn. Uh, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And in verse 5, say, Jethro's father's, sorry, Jethro's, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Mountain of God is uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, another name is uh, Mount Horeb. It's the same uh, uh, meaning. And verse 6, Jethro has sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and he kissed him. They greeted each other, and then they went into the tent. Moses was understandably, I think, elated to see uh, his wife, children, and father-in-law and what is less understandable to probably our modern readers is the immediate affection he shows to Jethro with no record of him showing affection to his wife after so many uh, uh, months away. But I think uh, he's excited, he bowed down, he greeted uh, Jethro, but never mentioned about him greeting his wife at all. But I think this is pretty much uh, our Western uh, my, but Eastern world is very different. Middle Eastern culture, both past and present, uh, operate differently. Um, what Hebrew author intend to do is often spotlight. It's a matter of spotlight. What is essential is being put in there. So that is the spotlight needs to fall on Moses and Jethro at this point in order to show Jethro's entry into the community of God and the role he would play in their strategic organization later on. And so the story of Israel's salvation is more focused on key developments than on some kind of romantic curiosity of sentimental moderns like us when we read uh, uh, an exodus. So the first point is quite straightforward in the sense, uh, verses 1 to 7 is just to record the point that Moses, uh, Jethro's uh, arrival, brought, bringing uh, his, his daughter, in, daughter and the two grandsons to reunite with uh, Moses. But I want to expand more on the second and the third point. So the second point I want to give to you from verse 8 to 12 is Jethro's adoration. Something happened to Jethro. And that is in verse 8 to 12. 
here in verse 8, it says, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh. In fact, uh, if, you, if you go back to verse uh, 1, Jethro already heard of it. Because here in the second part of verse 1, it says, Jethro heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He already heard about that. And here, when they entered the tent, Moses filled in the details, expanded more. He says here, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptian for Israel's sake and about all the hardship they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. All the hardship as well, not just only the good things. Uh, Christian journey is also coupled with hardship. So Moses is, uh, is balanced in the sense of how the Lord rescued them, delivered them, but at the same time also shared about all the hardship they had met along. Probably maybe this is the time that Moses winged a little bit and complained a little bit about how these people uh, keep on complaining, you know, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We should have died there and all that. So this is the time that Moses began to share with uh, his father-in-law what went on. And in verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And this is what he said. Listen here in verse 10, this is very important. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, this is the part of his conversion, his adoration. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. And this is what Jethro did after he professed about the God of Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. It is not clear whether Jethro was already a believer while he was in Midian and what sort of priest he actually was. Was he a kind of... Uh, is in the polytheistic culture, uh, he may be a priest. And that is why he confessed that, now I acknowledge that this Lord, your God, Israel God, is greater than all other gods. Whether or not he, he kind of uh, have some kind of uh, belief or influenced by Moses, spending 40 years with him when... Uh, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Moses actually went to tell the father-in-law, say, I'm going, I'm leaving. And uh, whether they must have spent many months of, and years uh, together. So we do not know exactly whether Jethro was a believer or not, but most likely not. And he was not a particularly a priest uh, uh, in, in the in the tradition of the Israel sense because the priesthood hasn't quite established until later part of it. Uh, but 
he, at this point, because he heard so much about Israel, God now, and here is an acknowledgement that he probably abandoning all other gods and worship that one true God. And uh, if you really study this part of the scripture, you will see that Jethro's conversion has few steps in the sand. He hears what God has done. Firstly, he hears what God has done for Israel in verse 1. And then he, Moses' family visit, and then Jethro with Moses' family visit the newly delivered community out of Egypt now. And then they go into the tent. And then Moses declares the good news to Jethro sharing about what God has done. And then Jethro rejoices over all the good that God has brought to Israel. And then the sixth step, Jethro gives public thanks that I've just read to you. And then Jethro lastly presents an offering to God. You see the step that it was involved in his conversion about him hearing God's word, about him visiting the community, entering into the tent. He heard the good news again more from Moses, and then he gave public thanks, and then publicly he confessed that God is the true God, and then he presents an offering to God. And here is talk about coming, hearing, accepting, rejoicing, worshipping. And so it is almost like a mark of a person conversion, moving from non-believing community to someone who believes the process is there. So here it talks about Jethro's adoration, Jethro's conversion into believing in this one true God. As you look at this text, I want to give you an application here. As you look at uh, the conversion of Jethro's story, what actually converted him? What actually was the deciding point in the sense? There, there may be many parts, but I think it's, it's one here he said he heard. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptian and the Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of Egyptian. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for He did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. In verse 10 and 11, we get the impression that Moses must have told Jethro about God, as we already said, but that the Midian priests must have been skeptical. So the difference that Jethro now actually came to believe in God is because God had objectively defeated the Egyptians and their gods to redeem Israel out of bondage. God has objectively defeated Egyptians. And Jethro sees it. What's so important to see here, I think, is that Jethro, the high priest of Midian, converts not because of a warm feeling or because he thinks that Yahweh worship is beautiful or because he feels that the worshippers of Yahweh were nicer or better in some way than other worshippers. He converts to worshipping God because of what God had done. It was an objective, objectively what God has done in history. 
So as we look at the gospel that we have now, the gospel isn't about our lives have improved or how much happier we are or even about anything regarding us at all. The gospel is about God and what God has objectively done in history. In history, God actually redeemed, God actually rescued His people, Israel, out of Egypt. And in history, God actually sent His Son into this world to take on human nature, suffer, die on a cross for our sins, rise from the dead, and ascend to reign with Him at His right hand. These are true objective facts. And if they were not true, then all the good feelings in the world couldn't redeem our religion. The gospel is about what God has done for His people through His Son, Jesus Christ, of which the exodus out of Egypt was merely an early foreshadowing as we have been over a number of weeks trying to project that this is a story of the gospel as well. It's a foreshadowing what is to come in the new covenant. Christianity is a historical religion. And unlike many religions, Christianity is not a philosophy. The truth of Christianity, the essence of Christianity is not something that people can arrive at after pondering a great wall under a tree or something like that. It is not the result of human speculations. It is grounded in historical fact. Paul says it a number of times in the New Testament in his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul says that when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything about you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. An objective fact. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul again says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The point is Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is a religion resting on historical facts summed up and centred in Christ. And that is precisely what Luke's Gospel, Luke who also wrote the book of Acts, Thus, in his gospel and Acts, he investigated everything. You read from verses 1 to 4 as he presents to Theophilus. He investigated everything from the beginning and wrote an orderly account of Jesus and his work to save us from our sins. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an order account for you. And I think this, we need to hear this in our day and age today, in the modern time, as our gospel has severely been skewed into many, many other uh, ways of positive thinking and all that other than the true gospel itself. Because many people calling themselves Christian look for comfort and the certainty of their salvation by focusing too much on themselves. They look at their feelings. If they feel they love by God, if they feel everything is going their way, then there are certain things are right between them and God and they are certain of heaven. 
Christianity, in some sense, has been propelled into some kind of self-help sort of scheme, another way to self-actualizations, which is coined, of course, by the management guru Abraham Maslow. Um, um, but here, if there's any application from Jethro conversion, is that Jethro was moved and converted because of an objective fact that he witnessed, that God has delivered Israel out of the bondages of Egypt for 400 years. And our Christian gospel is grounded in Jesus redeeming us. In actual fact, that He came, dwelt on earth for 33 years, died on the cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and, and then the Holy Spirit descended. But it's an objective work of the cross. Salvation is an objective work of the cross. Sir Lionel Laku, some of you may have heard of him. He held the, uh, he's known, he's considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history. Uh, he's recorded in the Giddens Book of Re World Record as the world's most successful lawyer with 245 consecutive murder acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II twice. And he used his skill as a, as a lawyer and later part of his life, at the age of 65, uh, he became a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He used his skill as a lawyer, and he said this to apply to investigating of the historical facts of Jesus' life. And this is his conclusion. He said, I humbly add, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and am still in active practice. That was then. He of course passed away. He said, I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials. 245, isn't it? And I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. The gospel is grounded in historical fact. It's something that really happened. And it just puzzled me that people who stray away from the gospel, uh, this is what Oz Guinness, in one of his books called the two, In Two Minds, this is what he said. Listen to this, his good quote. He said, To come to faith on the basis of experience alone is unwise. Though not so foolish as to reject faith altogether because of lack of experience. The quality of a Christian's experience depends on the quality of his faith just as the quality of his faith depends in turn on the quality of his understanding of God's truth. And in elsewhere, another book, he says this. He says, sometimes when I listen to people who say they have lost their faith, I am far less surprised than they expect. If their view of God is what they say, then it is only surprising that they did not reject it much earlier. Other people have a concept of God so fundamentally false that it would be better for them to doubt than to remain devout. The more devout they are, the uglier their faith will become since it is based on a lie. Doubt in such a case is not only highly understandable, it is even a mark of spiritual and intellectual sensitivity to error, for their picture is not of God, but an idol. So our faith 
is grounded in historical truth. Like what Jethro conversion, looking back his conversion because he knew what God had done. He witnessed himself. And so the question to us, church, even as a pastor, is does the church have the courage to become relevant by becoming biblical? That is the question I need to ask myself. Is it willing to break with the cultural habits of the time and propose something quite absurd like recovering both the word and the meaning of sin? And I fear, I fear the seeds of a full-blown liberalism have now been sown. And in the next generation, they will surely come to maturity, if not already at the start of it all. So our, our faith is grounded in historical fact about what Jesus had done for us on the cross, that He is a real person that came, fully God, fully man, came to redeem us, die on a cross for our sin, objectively. And so here is uh, Jethro adoration, and from that we can draw the application of a faith that is based on historical truths and not based on our feelings and not based on how good it's going to make us feel and all that. I think the heart of it all is, is the gospel. And on, until and only we come through and understand truly the gospel is the work of God and accept and receive and confess our sin, the true beautiful things, lasting eternal things, true changes will then emerge then all of this superficial way of approaching uh, help to our true fundamental nature. Let me move on to third point, uh, and that is Jethro advice. So in this passage, we see his arrival, his adoration, his conversion, and then now from the balance and remaining part of the verses, from verses 13 to 27, we are going to look at his advice. Because having entered the family of God, he noticed something about his son-in-law leadership style that prompted him to offer some paternal advice. He observed something. How do you like your father-in-law watching you work, you know, in a sense? Uh, so Jethro advised Moses to establish a system of delegated legal decision-making. You can... I mean, the, the remaining verses can draw so many principles pertaining to leadership. So what I want to, do, to, to work with you is I want to read through these verses because I want to let the text speak for itself and just fill it in uh, as I go along. Uh, verse 13, the next day, after his conversion, after he believed in God, the true God, and he offered sacrifices, and he said, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. Uh, why scholars felt that this part of the scripture uh, is placed oddly here. They, they believe that it should be placed after the giving of the law because here Moses seems to already have some kind of law in place. So the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people and they stood around him from morning till evening. Can you imagine people coming to Moses, standing morning till evening, waiting for Moses to to give verdict of their disputes and all that. 
uh, over two, over a million people, and then whatever they have, they just congregate together. Verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? While all these people stand around you from morning to evening. You kind of slow down the process, isn't it? These people stand up morning to evening and maybe they didn't get to their turn and then they come back again tomorrow. Oh, I didn't get to my turn again. And they might be waiting for weeks before the kind of justice being dispensed to them. So verse 15, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law's reply, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. The word wear yourself out has a root meaning of fade away. It's like a leaf falling to the ground. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. What a diplomatic way of telling Moses. You are still the leader, you know. You are the people's representative before God and and bring their dispute to you. You're still doing it. Teach them. Teach them His decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God. These are the qualities that are listed here of a leader in a sense. Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gains and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. Have them serve as judges Judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can handle, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God commands, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. This, then, sorry, I lost the train. Of, uh, verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. What a good son-in-law. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials of a thousand, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. You know, as we read through this passage, it, it, this may seem to be a matter of mere logistic delegation and organization, but notice that what was at stake ultimately was the survivor of the leader of Israel and the people of God and their final entry into the land of promise. That is in verse 23, isn't it? If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. It's a very wise uh, uh, advice 
about delegation. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, say, the most informed man is not necessarily the wisest. Indeed, there is a danger that precisely in the multiplicity of his knowledge, he will lose sight of what is essential. How true? That you lose sight of the main objective of your role. And many, many problems in life come from the fact that you don't know your role. And therefore, there is a lot of tension between that. Oswald Chamber, my favorite devotional author, uh, has a very wonderful insight into all this thing. He says this, he said, The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is actually your service to Him. It is never do-do with the Lord, but be-be, and He will do through you. And the only way to keep true to God is by a steady, persistent refuser to be interested in Christian work and to be interested alone in Jesus Christ. And I think he's trying to put it in a, not, not to de-emphasize the work, but to emphasize the importance of devotion to Him. And it's when it's devotion to Him, then the work that flow out of it, it is right. Then you will be able to be a little bit more objective and essential uh, in your focus. I think another uh, wonderful, beautiful application of this is one, one cannot help, isn't it, but to be struck by the humility of Moses in hearing and heeding the advice of his father-in-law. Moses is a powerful man of uh, 2.5 million people under his charge. After all, you know, but he, he did, he's a humble man. He, he took on his heart. And ask yourself, how many, father, how many fathers here think that you're confident to give advice to your son-in-law and your son-in-law will actually accept it? Or, will, or better still, how many mother-in-law can give advice to daughter-in-law? And how many daughter-in-law will listen and take advice from mother-in-law? Or how many son-in-law will actually take advice from father-in-law? Uh, not many people are humble enough to accept advice. Not many. And therefore, uh, we repeat the same mistake. How many young doctors are willing to take advice from senior doctors or any position for that matter? How many young Bible college students, fresh, first year, will, will listen to someone who has been in the field for many more years? Uh, we tend not to uh, take advice and therefore we make the same kind of mistake. Listening is important, and uh, he humbled himself and he listened to Jethro's advice. Did you know that the word listen contained the same letter as the word silent? The word listen contains the same letter as the word silent. Stephen Covey, uh, it's a moment by the way, uh, he he wrote the book, what, something like Seven Highly Successful Habits, I can't remember, many years ago. And uh, he says, he said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. So we don't listen to understand, we listen just to reply. And so the collective monologue is everyone talking and no one 
listening. So listening is an amazing skill. That's the best counseling skill that you can have. And that is learn to listen to people. And all that you need to say is tell me more. Listening to advice. And Moses did just that. And it is, if you fast forward to uh, uh, New Testament, Acts chapter 6, it's the same issues, isn't it? They were complaining, he, the, 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 the complaining about this and that, and then they select a few deacons to help to resolve the issue. In New Testament, there is also an application of uh, that text as well. And here, uh, Moses went on to talk about selecting capable men from from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonors gained. And again, if you fast forward to 1 Timothy 3, there again, Paul also gave very similar advice about the qualities and characters of a leader. But there's one application that uh, we cannot live without. And that is, there's no doubt that this text is also teaches us someone greater than Moses is coming, that we have, we have been trying to, to do that in the Exodus text. It is to point forward to the New Covenant, point forward to the New Testament, point forward to someone greater than Moses who is going to come. And so here, the Gospel, as we read that, the Gospel teaches us about this passage. is about someone greater than Moses. There's a very interesting study that I, I really don't want to bore you with a lot of details of that, but it was a very interesting study about Jethro being the median priest appear before Moses. Uh, and also the parallel of a, another priest in Genesis chapter 14 by the name of Melchizedek that he appears before Abraham. And they try to draw some parallel between these two accounts. And the astounding conclusion is just fabulous, just, just amazing. It says that Jethro first and foremost was a foreign priest of Midian, and Melchizedek was also a foreign priest. And then it says that Jethro came to Moses immediately after a great military victory, and that is God has destroyed Egyptian in the Red Sea. And then Melchizedek came to Abraham immediately after a military victory as well. Remember, Abraham went and rescued Lord out from these four kings and all that. So both came after a kind of victory. And then it also says that Jethro came to Moses immediately before God made a covenant with his people. And that is in chapter 19. Uh, two weeks' time, next week we have apologetics, of uh, receiving of the Ten Commandments. Same thing for Melchizedek. He appeared to, uh, came to Abraham immediately before God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And then it also said that Jethro blessed God for delivering Israel from their enemies. Same thing, Melchizedek blessed God for delivering Abraham from his enemies in Genesis 14. And then he said that Jethro brought out bread. And same thing, Melchizedek also brought out bread and wine in Genesis chapter 14. There is similar thing there. And then what are the conclusion of this author, this drawing this comparison is he said, if Jethro is meant to resemble Melchizedek, then Jethro is meant to both bless Moses and also to illustrate Moses' 
limitations. I mean, if you have to receive advice, it suggests that you are not complete, isn't it? You are not so wise in a sense. So, so this example is to, is to, the comparison is to bring across that Moses, to both bless Moses and also to illustrate Moses' limitation. Just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and then Abraham had to give a tithe to Melchizedek, so also Jethro blesses Moses by helping him judge the people better, thereby demonstrating, this is the conclusion of this, this, this paper, it says, thereby demonstrating that Moses is not the saviour of the world. He's not complete. And I think we see that all the way through the Bible. Everywhere we might be tempted to think that someone might be the hero of God's story, we find their limitations. Noah gets drunk and sleeps naked in his tent. Abraham humbles himself to be blessed by Melchizedek. David gets confronted by the prophet Nathan to rebuke him of his sin. Peter denies his master three times. And Moses takes advice from his father-in-law about how to lead the people of Israel better. Now, this isn't a knock on uh, uh, Moses, but just a biblical acknowledgement that Moses isn't the end of the story. It's a suggestion that someone greater than Moses would eventually come, and that the someone did come in the person of Jesus Christ to be the saviour of the world, a role that Moses was unqualified to fulfil. There are points in the Bible where we see clear declaration about who the Messiah would be, and there are points in the Bible where we intensely feel the vacuum that only he could fill. And the story is the later, and it shows us that we shouldn't settle for Moses. For as much glory as Moses had, the glory of Jesus brings the glory of Moses to nothing. I suggest if you have a chance, you read uh, Hebrews chapter 3, that the, the author was trying to prove that Jesus was greater than Moses. And then Jesus comes from the line of Melchizedek in chapter 7. Look it up and you will know that this, there's some implication from this story about knowing that someone greater will come in the future. And that is being fulfilled now as we look back. So here, here we go with uh, Exodus chapter 18. Uh, Jethro arrival and Jethro adoration that he came to know the true Yahweh God. How? By knowing what God has done in history, delivering the Egyptian. And the application is that uh, the gospel is grounded in historical fact of Jesus dying on the cross for us. And here we have G, uh, Jethro's advice. And in this advice, the implication and the application is to point to someone greater. That Moses is not complete. Not complete. He's not the end. And it's a foreshadowing of someone greater who is perfect in every way. Read the book of Hebrews as the author will try to present that, that Jesus is the great God who came to us in human flesh.
I actually have one more application, uh, but I'm going to pause there and give it again some other time. What is the best gift you ever received in your life? Do you have one? I have. I received my best gift in 1993 on my last Sunday at church prior to leaving for the Indian subcontinent for uh, more than two years as a short-term mission work. After the uh, service, one lady, one church member came to me and gave me a book. And the book is by Oswald Chamber, My Utmost for His Highest. I've never heard of him before. The book was given to me uh, and it has since been with me for the last 27 years. One day when I was in India, I was taking a train uh, from the city that I was in, in South India, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, AP. Uh, I was in a city called Visakhapanam. And I was taking a train to the capital of Andhra Pradesh, which is Hyderabad. It was an overnight train, uh, maybe 12, 13 hours, I can't exactly remember. And it was packed, it was noisy. I was sitting in the train, sitting on my berth there and uh, it was noisy, it was windy, people coming on and off the train as it stopped in various stations, selling chai and, and all that, very noisy and, and I was, I picked up Oswald Chambers' book and it was December the 1st and I read that devotion and it was that moment, you know, sometimes we have moment in a sense, I don't know what you call that, a moment that you you, it affects you deeply of your life, in a sense. And in that devotion on December 1, uh, Oswald Chambers said this, I was sitting on the, on the upper deck, the, the berth, not upper deck, upper berth, uh, looking at this sea of people coming in with noise and all that. And these words, Oswald Chambers said, I, a guilty sinner, can never work to get right with God. It is impossible. There is only one way by which I can get right with God. And that is through the death of Jesus Christ. I must get rid of the underlying idea that I can ever be right with God because of my obedience. Who of us could ever obey God to absolute perfection? I must get it. I repeat the, the, the sentence again that, that hit me that day on the 1st of December, 1993. I must get rid of the underlying idea that I can ever be right with God because of my obedience. It is an objective work of the cross and the obedience is merely the response to in accepting what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That is the gospel. And I hope and I pray in your own situation that you will come to Jesus, bow your head, surrender your life, knowing that you are never good enough for Him, but it's because of His work on the cross 
that brings salvation to your soul. May this God be with you and bless you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this story of Jethro in Exodus 18. They tell us so much about the gospel. But the gospel is grounded in historical truths of what you have done for us on the cross. Forgive us, Lord, uh, that we have turned this gospel into something else that it is not. And so many people are settling for that. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross for us. And I pray that if there's anyone uh, listening to this sermon this morning, uh, deep in the recesses of their heart, Lord, speak to them and that they will bow and give their heart to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. May God give you perspective on the things that frustrate you. May your heart of compassion grow for those who suffer in unimaginable ways. May you pray as passionately for them as you do for yourselves. May God protect you from a small, selfish mindset. May He fill you up with thanksgiving and joy for the freedoms you enjoy. May He renew your resolve to be a grateful, humble soul. And finally, may He use you today in ways the surprise and bless you now and forevermore. Amen.